This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. On America's Web Radio, I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and in studio with me today are Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome. So glad you guys are here. Thank, Thank you. you. Very glad to be here. We're going to talk about a subject that I think is really important and probably not something that we think often about, which is words. Why do we have words? Why do we need them? And what are some of the problematic words that are associated with recovery? So those are the things we're going to talk about today, and hopefully it will get all of our listeners thinking a little bit about the words they use, what they are really trying to say, and ways in which we can help not only remove the stigma of the disease of addiction, but also... Um, we're going to be able, hopefully, to help people understand what some of those complicated words actually mean. So, well, And I also think it's important because there's a lot of words that, that people are going to hear when they go to a 12-step meeting. Right. That in the setting of a 12-step meeting are, are very appropriate and very helpful. But when you're hearing them coming from a family member or when you're coming from a therapist, they have an entirely different meaning and a different connotation. Um, and so therapists that might be listening um, recognize that these aren't necessarily words you should be using. So we've got lots of problems, lots of problems with words, and we're going to dive right in. So why do we need words? What when we think about evolution of man and we think about the difference between humans and animals, we know that mammals can communicate. We know that's one of the advantages that you get when you get to be a mammal is the ability to communicate and to communicate feelings. Mm-hmm. So that is pretty clear that we are able to communicate But it's more than that. Words mean a whole lot more than that. And words allow us to do some things besides just direct or indicate the obvious. Words are really important because without words, we really would not be able to think. And that is the reason that we have words and that language is so important. The way in which we learn about ourselves, our culture, and the way that we learn about the words, excuse me, about our world is through the words that we hear and the words that we learn to understand and then the words that we use to describe not just things, but the abstract. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, the abstract um, concepts, the ideas, goals things that are important to us, things that enrich our lives, troubles sometimes that we struggle with. We talk about that and we use our language and we use words to explain that not to other people, not only to other people, but also to ourselves. (laughs) And when we think about the words that we use every day, how very important they are and how often Words, as you were saying a minute ago, David, can become misconstrued and words can become really confusing. And and have very, very different meanings based on the setting that you're in. Um, words, 
um, the obvious um, reason for words, of course, is to be able to communicate one idea to another person and help that person um, help each other to be able to recognize concepts and to expand <coughs> upon ideas. Um, and, and within the 12-step step community, there are several words that are used um, <coughs> to help people just connect. Virginia Satir talked about how we connect on, on a basis of similarity. And so within a 12-step community, there will be a lot of words that they'll use to help you connect on a similarity level. Mm-hmm. The, the one that comes to mind is junkie. You know, real often, one junkie will say to another junkie, I, I'm a junkie, and um, I recognize uh, another junkie. And in that setting, that's a very appropriate word to use, and you're going to hear it regularly. If you hear a therapist saying, hey, you're a junkie, that's probably going to create a different um, a different feeling. Right. The same word, same way with, like, drunk. You know, when it's just one, one drunk talking to another. Well, that's one thing, but that's if an it's... That's an AA meeting. Exactly. An AA meeting. <laughs> but if somebody calls you a drunk that's not a drunk, then it's completely different. It's a pejorative word, mm-hmm. and it's accusatory, and it is often interpreted by the person hearing it as being belittling or making fun of. In some way, it's not a flattering word. It's not a joining word. True. One person with addiction talking to another and using some of the terms that are commonly thrown around, that's a joining thing. That's mm-hmm. I'm, I'm recognizing, as you said, David, I'm recognizing in you the same kinds of struggles that I have in me. But when someone else, a family member, a therapist, a doctor, a healthcare provider uses those words then it is has a, t- a totally different meaning and is alienating instead of joining. <clears throat> it puts up boundaries and barriers that get in the way of perhaps what that um, the person using the word incorrectly or in the wrong context is actually trying to do. I remember once uh, um, attending a training for a type of therapy um, th- and I'm blank right now on the type of therapy. Um, it was developed for working with eating disorders, and it was developed for helping them in their recovery process, and it was developed at Emory, and the word is not coming to me. I'm hoping you're going to fill that in for me. But in listening to this trainer talk, so much of what the trainer was talking about was the language of that particular therapy to connect with patients. And what my ears were hearing was this person is trying to change the language of recovery. So for myself in that training experience, I was becoming very defensive with it because I felt like the language of recovery has been working for for years. Why are you coming in trying to change the language of recovery? Um, But from this other perspective, um, I'm still trying to get the name of that word, the name of the therapy. I wish I could help you. Um, (laughs) It will come to me probably during break. But... For that population, the language of recovery wasn't working. You know, for the eating disorders who had have their own um, um, difficulties and struggles, the language of recovery was was demeaning and and um, taking disempowering. Mm-hmm. And so, the language of recovery there wasn't working. And and the therapeutic community needed to come up with some new language to help them to begin um, transcending their illness. 
And I think that is a real common kind of situation. Not only do words change over time, but words change in a, a context, and words can have a different meaning for different groups and different um, cultures. And we may be thinking that we're communicating just fine. I remember years ago when I first moved to the South, I was working in a situation where, where, the, uh, where my boss, on break, uh, my boss was from up north, and she would ask me, can you run and get me a soda? Now, I'm from out west, and where I grew up, soda was a soft drink that we called pop that had ice cream in it. So that's what a soda was to me. So I go running all over town trying to find a restaurant or a drugstore or some place that would make a soda but with my definition. So I finally found a little cafe that had ice cream and carbonated beverages, and I got her a soda, and I brought it back to her, and she had this kind of funny look on her face when she took a drink of it, but she thanked me, and the next day she said, I, I'd like soda, and so fortunately now I knew where the cafe was, and I didn't have to spend quite so much time. Finally, after uh, several days of this, she said, could you do it without ice cream? And I said, well, sure, but that's not a soda. She said, yeah, that's what a soda is. And I, she said, what do you call a, a, um, a carbonated soft drink? And I say, well, we call that pop. <laughs> and a soda is a pop with ice, ice cream. cream in it. So I'm trying really hard to be this good employee and to impress my boss who's come in from out of town. <laughs> and I am just, at the end of the day, annoying her <laughs> with my great attempts to bring her my interpretation of a soda. Now, that's a silly kind of thing, and we had some laughs, and obviously it still sounds crazy today, but at that point, that we were communicating very clearly, <laughs> mm -hmm. except we weren't communicating clearly at all. And right. my idea and my definition of a soda was not at all hers. So we do this all the time, and it creates problems. It also creates problems, I think, when we are cryptic in emails or text. text. Now, my children no longer want to read an email. Certainly, probably don't even check their mailboxes and probably wouldn't get a card or a letter if I hand-wrote one to them. They don't want to listen to voicemails. In fact, my one son just leaves his voicemail full all the time, so you cannot leave him a voicemail because he won't listen to them. They want texts. And I agree, they're really fast, although the self-autocorrect generates some difficulties <laughs> because sometimes the words get changed to things that 
I don't mean at all. But it's hard to interpret the nuance. It's hard to interpret what someone is really meaning. And time and time again, and I know you all have heard it too, where someone has gotten insulted, their feelings hurt, gotten angry, because how they read the text was very different than how the person intended the text to be. Mm -hmm. And without the context of a conversation, first of all, secondly, without being able to hear the voice inflection and some of the other cues as to whether this person is being kind and inviting (coughs) or accusatory, you you lose that context, and then, unfortunately, the communication becomes very difficult, even though the words may be very clear. But even with that, within that, being human beings, we have um, corrected some of that with the emojis or the emoticons. Well, there's which, true. which, um, <laughs> I mean, it, it still is part of that creating language. I mean, it's going back to the whole aspect, but it's making it's shortening it to emojis and different. Um, LOLs and but and, and that and speaks to a real generational use of language that that for <coughs> the younger generation to have a text message and and they will whip through a dissertation on a text thing and get all of that stuff communicated whereas for me to see somebody sending a text that's more than two lines seems like you should just pick up the phone and have a conversation (laughs) but we don't we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about problematic language thanks for listening the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. 
More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. And today I have David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about problematic words and the problems with words. Certainly, as humans, we have the gift of language, which allows us to communicate, which allows us to have abstract thoughts, which allows us to be creative and to think and plan and to have ideas and to use our imagination. Without language, we wouldn't be able to do any of those things. But just as all of those things are possible with our use of language, Language can also get us into a boatload of problems, and more and more, I think, we find ourselves in a boatload of problems because of trying to shortcut some of our use of language. When you were talking, Michael, about using the emoticons, um, I'm thinking, yes, but sometimes I'll get those texts with the emoticons on it, and I'll have to push on the emoticon to find out what it meant Mm -hmm. or what it is and try and figure out how that that relates to the conversation that that I think we may or may not be having. (laughs) So (laughs) even though the emoticons do help add some additional context and emotion, Uh um, it's not always communicated at least not to me, because of the general generation gap, as you said, David. So I had no idea you could even do that. <laughs> so you can just push on an emoticon, and it'll tell you the, the feeling behind uh-huh. No idea. Baby face, baby crying. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. But so the idea that, that, you know, last week we talked about the various parts of our brain and how our brain deals with experiences in different ways – what I have noticed in this generational thing is that, that the young generation can communicate and and do very, very well with text messages, and, and they do fine with it. The older generation um, will have panic attacks and anxiety disorders <laughs> dealing with trying to communicate with their kids related to um, um, text messaging. You know, our generation thinks if you send out a message and you know they've received it, they should respond now. Right. And and if they don't respond now, they're sending you a message. The younger generation text messages, we're going to respond when we get to it because we're doing other things and we're living our life. And and those two um, differences just in just in what is polite communication is mm-hmm. changing. And what's the expectation? <laughs> right. And and even generationally, I'll I'll talk to my mother via text who's used to talking to my nieces via text. So she's very up on all the lingo and up on all the um, abbreviations and whatever. And then she'll text me, and I'll have no clue what she's talking about. But you would think that I would because she's older than I am. It's just that she's more hip. hip. (laughs) (laughs) She's more educated in that kind of language. So when we think about the importance of words and the importance of what they mean, there are some words 
in 12-step programs in particular that I think create problems for people. And these words are sometimes used as an excuse or a barrier for someone to prevent them or give them a reason why they're not going to engage in some recovery programs. But some of them do have some meanings that are difficult. Mm -hmm. And one of these words I'm thinking of is powerlessness. Starting right there at the very first word. Just let me just go ahead and get right in. Yep. For a lot of people, um, myself included, when when you first get to a meeting um, and you see that powerlessness, it's it's in your human nature not to want to ask for help, especially being an alcoholic or an addict. You don't think that mm-hmm. you need anyone's help. And then to say, oh, I'm powerless and I need to ask for help is a huge stumbling block. Right. Um. And, and it's amazing, though, if you keep coming back, how that language and, and some of those words change so dramatically as you get sober and, and mm-hmm. start, you know, getting into the program. You know, and when people are going to meetings and they're reading the, the recovery literature and, and they read about the word powerlessness, they, they're able to see that, that coming to terms with that word was a huge battle. You know, it's not an easy word for anyone to accept. He actually writes about recognizing that that the Bill Wilson, when he started this, recognizing that his entire life had become controlled by this one little glass of, of alcohol and having to accept that everything he's tried to do to have power over that little glass of alcohol has failed. You know, it's it's a painful word to come to terms with. Um, and in the course of, of meetings and in the recovery setting, um, being able to just relax and breathe and say, yes, I'm powerless. I've tried everything I can to control it, and nothing has has worked. In that setting, it's fine. But but when some, you're trying to work on accepting powerlessness outside of that and, and somebody's saying, mm-hmm. well, tell me ways that you've tried to control your your drinking, um, it's, it's just a, a, a different world. And I think that word is often very important, particularly for men in recovery, because a lot of times their ego, their way of dealing with the world is through power, is through overcoming, is through domination. And when women hear that now I've got to admit that I'm powerless over alcohol or drugs or behaviors and that my life is unmanageable for many women the reaction is and here we go again Mm -hmm. everybody's trying to take my power away everybody's trying to tell me I'm weak and not capable and that I um, have no control over my life so for many women hearing that word in particular I think is Mm off-putting and creates difficulty so men have trouble with it because they don't want to be powerless over something and women have trouble with it because they feel like they're powerless over <laughs> things everything. all all the time and that that um, here's one more thing which is adding to um, and to my burden but 
I think both groups are missing the boat about what that word really means. Absolutely. And in the context of the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, that word is really talking about this is a disease and I can't change it. I can't wish, hope, think, pray, pretend, ignore, and it's going to go away or be okay. It, I have this, mm-hmm. and this has created this situation in my life, and that there's nothing I can do to make it go away. I can learn to manage it. Absolutely. So that's my interpretation. How would you help explain to somebody that first word to help them not be off-put by it, but to feel... Well, as, as you were talking about it, you know, they, they use the same 12 steps in several different types of programs. Exactly. And, and so the one that came to mind for me as you were talking about it was actually the OA program, Overeaters Anonymous. And in their, um, their original literature, they talk about how our, one person talks about how he realized that when he would take a bite of food and that food would go down to his stomach, Part of the way his brain pictured it is that part of that food would instantaneously just go to his side and be stored as fat. And there was nothing he could do to keep that food from going through his system and storing as fat. Another portion of it would send this message to his brain that would say, I'm a horrible, guilty human being and I should feel like, like, um, filled with regret that I would allow this to happen to my body. And so he, this person's realization that this bite of food that he was trying to control would not only change his body image but also change his thinking about himself helped him to come to terms with mm-hmm. he's powerless over what's going to happen when that food crosses his lips. I think for for alcoholics it's it's still that same scenario that when it's it's not powerlessness in life it's not powerless over everything it's powerless over when you drink or when you use your drug of choice that your life is is at that moment changed that you're no longer able to predict what your decisions are going to be you're not able to predict when you're going to stop using um you're not able to predict if you're going to wake up in jail mm-hmm. or if you're going to be in an Remember accident anything you did <laughs> because and the impact that the alcohol has on your brain. And also in the big book, when when um, one of the stories where a guy goes in, orders lunch, has a glass of milk, does great, thinks, okay, I did really good. So the next day he goes in, has a sandwich and a glass of milk, does great. Next day he goes in, has a sandwich and a glass of milk, but he has a shot. So he thinks, oh, I'll pour the shot in the milk and maybe I won't get as drunk. Except, you know, that's that takes him off on the races and he had a five-day bender and it just shows the insanity of of the disease that you think i know i'm powerless over alcohol but maybe if it's presented in this way or maybe if it's taken in this way or maybe if it's added with a little bit of milk to coat my stomach then i won't get out of control I won't get out of control and i like the word that's sometimes used in in recovery language which is my brain has been hijacked so you're having your normal day going down the street going to lunch having your milk and your sandwich this is your plan for the day this is where you're going this is how you're going to accomplish the things that are on your to-do list Mm -hmm. and when drugs alcohol or behaviors enter in 
then suddenly you're hijacked. And just like someone hijacking your car and taking it off wherever it's going to go, and you have no control over that. I remember living in Baltimore where carjackings were a big deal um, during the, um, well, I'm not going to say what decade, (laughs) but it was when I was in my training um, in Baltimore, and we had to drive late at night sometimes to cover um, shifts at the emergency room. So they would tell us, don't come to a full stop at stoplights. Slow down and just kind of try and time it to wait it out so that it turns green and you go. Don't completely stop. You know, put your purse on the floor behind your seat. Lock your doors. Be aware. Because people would come in and suddenly if you're carjacked, that plan to get to the emergency room and be to work is completely gone. gone. And that that concept of what happens when drugs, alcohol, or behaviors enter in the program, and you are powerless. Once your car has been carjacked, you're you're not going where you thought you were. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more problematic words. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and with me today are David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about the problem with words and the problem words that often become a barrier or at least get in the way sometimes of people in the beginning of recovery feeling comfortable fully embracing them. So we talked about the first step, which um, talks about um, we are powerless over, and I'll use the alcohol word, uh, we're powerless over alcohol and our life has become unmanageable. So powerlessness is a, a big word that sometimes creates a lot of difficulty and a lot of misconception. Now let's go to the second step because this one's got two big words in it that, um, or two big concepts that get in the way. And the first one is insanity. That's a, that's a, that's a word I think most addicts and alcoholics understand totally, but they don't like to label that. Although they feel it, when I think anyone that comes through the doors of of a twelve step program has felt that insanity before. That that, in spite of every effort that they've made, in spite of every possible way that they've tried to do things differently, they continually end up doing the same thing over and over again. And you know that's the definition of of insane is is doing the same over same thing over and over again and always expecting a different result um i think that um many of many addicts and alcoholics defense system is so strongly created by this point though that they are real quick to recognize other people's craziness (laughs) and and they will in fact say i'm not crazy if you had to live with my wife you'd be drinking too you know they've got that right built into their system that everybody else is crazy all those people who keep trying to control me and control my use they're the crazy ones um and and i think a lot of family members really relate to that feeling of i really am crazy why do i keep doing this and and so it becomes a um back and forth battle of of who's the crazier (laughs) right and who's the crazy one in this equation but that it's a it's a difficult I think, like you say, Michael, people who have been active in the disease of addiction or their family members recognize the the insanity of all of the things that the person active in their disease has done <laughs> and the insanity of all of the things that the loved ones, the people who have been trying to control and contain and prevent bad things from happening, the insanity of the links they have gone to Absolutely. to try and manage this illness and manage this person with the disease of addiction, that it becomes, for both sides, they begin to, to recognize that there is insanity when disease is active. And it's not just for the person who has the disease, but it's for everyone around them. That's very true. And and what's so important to understand is that even though you know 
that when something occurs, you can go back right back into the insanity without even blinking an eye. And a person, you know, it's interesting to talk to uh, family members when, when their loved one has a slip. When their loved one has a slip, or even right before they have the slip, the, usually a loved one or a family member is, is ready to go into that insanity right with them. And the minute they do, it's back to watching the phone record, watching the, you know, what time you got home, who you were with, what, it's, it's, it's always very interesting to, to hear that. And, and family members actually will talk nowadays in our modern technology about seeing on their phone that their loved one has just gone somewhere where they know they shouldn't. Um, and so they'll feel that anxiety and that, that insane feeling mm-hmm. coming up over them, but they won't necessarily recognize that they were already in an insane place while they were tracking their loved one's position. We're looking for it. We're looking for it. They're right. looking for the, the craziness. So I think that when you break it down and you talk about what happens and you help point out to the person and or their loved ones the insanity of it, I think most people can come to terms with it. But there's another concept in this step two that... Well, and, b- and before we go there, the, the, the second part of step two is restore us to sanity, mm-hmm. right. that we can be, be healed from this. And, and I was thinking of, um, of a person I had been talking to who in early recovery was talking about um, driving down the street to work. And every day he would drive down the street, he would pass this certain turn. That would be the turn to go to where his, his dealer lived um and every day driving past that his brain would say oh so and so lives down there and then eventually it started to say i wonder how so and so is doing and then eventually it said well maybe i should just go check on him and then he was back to using and and (laughs) that whole process of of driving that same route to work instead of picking up the phone talking to somebody else maybe driving a separate street to go to work or changing his route um, or doing something, he, he just, over the course of a few months, talked himself into eventually turning left and going down to that street where his dealer lived. You know, and that walking back down that insane path mm-hmm. and not seeing the insanity of, of mm-hmm. those steps all the way through that process. So, the, yes, the, I, the, the words in step two restore us to sanity, I think, to me, is the hope of the whole program is the hope of recovery and that is a very important concept to balance with the idea of insanity is to balance the idea that restore things can be much better we all can be restored it's we've come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity is the second step Mm-hmm. So the power greater than ourselves can open all kinds of conversations, all kinds of opinions, all kinds of difficulties. But for many people, this is a real stumbling block to embracing recovery. Well, and, and that's just kind of the lead-in because then the third step <laughs> says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God 
as we understood him. And so it's like, okay, you, you've kind of started reeling me in with that power greater than ourselves, but the real thing is you're going to throw that God word at me and, and try to drag me into church or something. <laughs> and for many people, that stirs up all kinds of feelings, some positive, some encouraging, some very negative, and... A lot of the pushback that I hear from patients is, well, I don't want to be involved. That's a religious cult. That's a um, a bunch of um, freaks mm-hmm. that are dealing with um, concepts that I don't care about, I don't believe in, and I'm not going to go there. So, yeah, the second step it eases us in, and the third step pulls out the God word, which can be very difficult because some people have had really good res- experiences and others have not, and it becomes quite a battle. Well, and and I think it becomes a controversial word regardless because if you've if you've there are, there are many people who will have a hard time with the word God being used in a context outside of their their upbringing outside of the church and the Bible, where God had very specific meanings. Um, and and for those people seeing it at an AA meeting, um, one can can seem um, irreverent, right? Or two, it could they they can have the message. Well, I've known God all my life, so I already got this, so I don't really need to do anything mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Right. There's many people where that just becomes the what's the problem? I've already got this, so so I'm cured. And then there's the group of people where God has always been viewed as a harsh and judgmental and and separating being that that's left them feeling out in the cold. So it's it's a controversial word from many many different directions. Well, it can be from every single different direction, uh, depending upon your view of of that word. And um, that's why then if if you read into it. You know, talking about a, a power greater than yourself or a higher power um, tries to help soften that that concept. I think to bring people back to what whatever you're you're caring about, or however you can make it work for yourself, is is what they want you to do. Right, and that it's of your understanding of your. However, you want to think about that. However, you can embrace that, and it does not have to be defined by any specific name or culture or deity or any of the other words mm-hmm. that we could use. It is defined by you yourself, and that is your personal understanding and acceptance, and it's not. It doesn't have to be the same as everybody else's, and it doesn't have to be talked about in the same way as everyone else's. So that is, though, a conversation that almost universally you have to have with someone as they're beginning to get into recovery, particularly if they're going to be using um, 12-step support, mm-hmm. is they, they need to have that discussion. And and it's 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 interesting because... As as you're going through the steps, and as you're you're like David said, you know the second one is sort of reeling you in, getting you prepared for what's to come, and then that comes along, um, and then you hear that oh, by the way, you need a sponsor to help you go through these steps, and that 
brings up a completely <laughs> n- whole new set of of wondering what that word means or how it's used in this context. Right, because when we think of a sponsor, I've heard people think that's going to be somebody that's going to pay their way mm-hmm. through treatment. Right. Um, someone that is going to put up a wagon and bring them home. There's many ways in which people think about that word sponsor. We're going to take a break, and um, our sponsor will be talking (laughs) during this time, and we'll see you back in a few minutes. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Michael Daly and David Donaldson have joined me today, and we're talking about problematic words and some of the ways in which words have created difficulties and obstacles for people trying to get into treatment or early recovery. There are words that have very unfortunate connotations and we talked a little bit about that in the first um, in the first segment but I remember being in a, an ASAM meeting very early on and listening to Ed Stolstis uh, from New York talking about our language around addiction and how important it is if we're going to remove the stigma of addiction 
and help our patients become accepted not only in the community and in their family, but in the field of medicine, then we need to be very careful about the words that we use and the way that we address things. And there are a number of words that are problematic that continue to be part of our language sometimes and certainly part of common layman's language. We see it all the time. And this is a this is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And many, many times these words are used not necessarily to mean or bring offense, but they do. And mm-hmm. they keep many of our patients stuck in this um, in this very um, Shame. stigmatized, yeah. sta- shamed place. Mm-hmm. So, starting with drug screens. Um, I remember hearing about clean drug screens and dirty drug screens. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is really pretty much the standard word you still hear when people are just kind of doing shorthand of, of what the results were and passing it along to um, um, people who are asking, you know, if a family member has a release and they call in to find out the result, they're, they're, they're listening for that word, oh, it's clean. Um, or um, th- we need to talk. It was dirty in a certain in some areas. So it's it's a pretty entrenched word in the in the communication. Right. And if we want this to be really recognized and respected as a medical tool that helps us assess whether our patients are being compliant with their treatment plan or whether they may be struggling, then the words that might be more appropriate for us to use would be positive or negative, or even more appropriate, I think, are consistent and inconsistent. Because sometimes the drug test will be positive, but it's positive for a medication that the person is supposed to be taking. Correct. So that would be a consistent drug screen. It's positive but consistent. Mm -hmm. And that's a clearer communication, I think. So it's a consistent drug screen or it's inconsistent. Now, inconsistent can mean it's completely negative, but it's inconsistent because what the patient is supposed to be taking is not not in that drug screen. So even the positive and negative can create some difficulties in communication. So, I can recall the the, um, first time that I saw a drug screen that said positive for a medication that was supposed to be there. It had the medications listed at the top of the page, but down there by where the result was, it had the the scientific name as, as opposed to the the common, the common name. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it didn't say consistent or inconsistent. It just said positive. So I looked at it, and after initial kind of reaction, saw that it was <laughs> supposed to be there. And then this patient needed to take a copy to their probation officer, and and when the patient saw it, they really freaked out because they were unsure as to how the probation officer, or they actually thought the probation officer would just see it and throw him directly in jail. Um, so, so we actually had to go back to the drug screen company and talk to them about how they're reporting this so as to not get our patients in trouble. Um, because that that's, when you see the word positive, you automatically think dirty. Oh, no. Yes, there's a problem. No, it may be a problem if there's nothing in that urine. So 
consistent, inconsistent. Again, good medical terms able to communicate more clearly what we're trying to say about the status of that drug test. Mm -hmm. Certainly the words we use. And we have a lot of trouble with words in this um, specialty of um, treating addiction. We can't decide what we call the person we treat. Correct. Are they a patient? Are they a consumer? Are they a client? client. What are we? And um, and what are we treating is our next word that we have trouble with. Are we treating drug abuse? Well, I can promise you that if you only meet the criteria in the old diagnostic and statistical manual for abuse, that your insurance company not going to pay for that treatment. Um, are you a dependent? Do you have drug dependence? Or do you have the more, uh, more appropriate way of saying a person with the disease of addiction? So when we think about what do we call the person, I believe this is a medical disease, and certainly many people do as well. And because it's a medical disease, we call the people we treat patients. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not universally accepted, and again, there are some discussions in the community, but I think that's pretty clear. I think that the DSM-4, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Number 4, really got people confused with abuse and dependence Mm -hmm. because, again, abuse but what was so interesting during that time period was that that if you just went through the criteria for abuse, eighty percent of college students would meet it. Right. You know, and and so if they went to college and they met those criteria, and you gave them a diagnosis that's going to be with them for the rest of their life, that was a problem. That is a big problem. Um, if you went for the criteria for dependency, if somebody had a medical condition where they were being treated for pain for over a month, they were probably going to meet the criteria for dependency, um, and they may have been upright, fine citizens for for their entire life, and suddenly they've got a diagnosis that's going to, once again, be sticking with them for life. And there was like this gap in between, okay, what's the difference between this college student who was out there, you know, treating alcohol in a stupid manner and this, this person, and it didn't really speak to the disease that we were treating. So the new DSM um, came out with substance use disorder with the modifiers moderate, severe, um, and even further modifiers um, in remission, <coughs> in remission, um, in a in a controlled environment, controlled environment, or on medication, or on medication to help not be the people that are. Um, are being treated appropriately, and they added on to it the criteria of cravings, which right. was not on either of the categories in the past, Before. which which really um, does speak to it. The problem with that, because I'm just going to go ahead and kick the DSM-5 too, the problem is is that it continues to focus on the drug instead of the brain. The disease. Instead of the disease. So many patients come in with the idea that my problem is I have substance use disorder related to opiates, so that means I'm fine to smoke pot or to drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. Instead of I have the disease of addiction, 
that's manifested by the use of alcohol, the use of opioids, the use of tobacco, the use of marijuana. So the um, term that I prefer is addiction. Mm-hmm. And that that's a real important term in terms of acknowledging this is the disease and acknowledging that the problem is with the person's brain, not with alcohol, not with marijuana, not with pain medicine. It is a brain disease. Well, and that's that's one of the things that, that's happened, and, and we've talked about this before on the show, is when you have the different 12-step Programs, so so now they've divided themselves up, and that further keeps this this separation separation going, going rather than um, thinking of yourself as an addict, someone with the disease of addiction. So, in closing, I would like to leave you with a sign that's here in uh, America's Web Radio, which is the Cowboy's Logic. Be sure to taste your words before you spit them out. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.